I'm Rasha, and this is Policy Talks. Welcome to Policy Talks, a show focused on policy analysis and international affairs. In this episode, we explore Lebanon's unique electoral system and the most recent elections. Lebanon is a religiously, culturally, and politically diverse country. This diversity has complicated the development of a stable political arrangement and impeded the development of a single national identity. The Lebanese Civil War from 1975 to 1990 brought the complicated sectarian landscape of the country to its violent conclusion. Since that time, Lebanon has attempted to maintain stability through the confessionalism system established in the 1989 Life Agreement. The agreement decreed Lebanon's 128 parliament seats were to be equally divided among Muslims and Christians. It stipulated that the country's president must be a Maronite Christian, the prime minister, a Sunni Muslim, and the speaker of parliament, a Shia Muslim. The most recent parliamentary election this May was the first in nearly a decade due to numerous delays and political strife. To discuss the results of the elections and the implication of those results, I sat down with Professor Paul Adams, a professor of journalism at Carleton University. Dr. Adams worked for many years as a Middle East correspondent to the Global Mail and was in Lebanon for the most recent election as an international observer. Thank you for joining us, Professor. Great to be here. So to start off, uh, if you'd like to give our listeners a little bit of a background about the recent outcome of the election and specifically what it means for the future of Lebanon. Right. So just if I can just explain my my background and and the basis of my knowledge, I was the Globe and Mail's Middle East correspondent at the time of 9-11, the years after that, spent a lot of time in Lebanon, but never lived there. When I after I left the media in 2004, I've done a lot of election observation several in the Palestinian territories. I've been to Mauritania. This was my second Lebanese election. I'd been there in 2009. So I'm not an area specialist, but, I'm, but I've done a lot of election monitoring. So uh, this election was an interesting one because there had, it had been postponed, right? It was originally, the last election was 2009. Uh, uh, in theory, this election was supposed to occur in 2013, four years later. It was repeatedly postponed. A lot of that had to do with the, the crisis in Syria, and there's been a massive influx of refugees into Lebanon, more than a million people perhaps. Um, you know, this is an enormous burden on, a, on a, quite a small country, which also, by the way, has a large Palestinian refugee population as well. So the elections were repeatedly postponed. That's not a good sign from the perspective of democratic development for people like us who are looking at elections. But these elections were run at a fairly high technical quality. Uh, there was intense competition, as there always is in Lebanon, because there's so many parties, so many di- uh, parties representing different faiths, different uh, ideological perspectives, and so on. So it was intensely competitive. The administration of the elections was fairly sound. And what you got was 
not really a dramatic shift in Lebanese politics, but a subtle shift. This, the subtle shift came for this reason. The, the, the uh, party of Prime Minister Hariri, which is a, uh, a dominantly Sunni party, lost some of its support. Um, it uh, is still one of the largest parties in the parliament, but it lost significant support. The uh, um, Shiite parties, the predominantly Shiite parties, Amal and Hezbollah, and Hezbollah, of course, is well known uh, for many other reasons, but Amal and Hezbollah increased their support. Um, the result is not a change in government suddenly, uh, because you know the the Shiites in total get 27 out of the 128 seats. So even if the the Amal and Hezbollah win all the seats in there um, uh, among the Shiite Muslims, that doesn't gonna isn't going to put them in power. But it's a little bit like you know a chessboard. If one side, if the if the white loses a couple of pawns, then it will significantly shift the balance of power. And so what we've seen is a shift of power towards the Shiite parties and away from the dominant Sunni party. And if you want to put that in uh, a regional perspective, that shifts it a little bit towards ir Iranian influence and a little bit away from Saudi influence. So touching on this important result and the shift in power, could you give us a bit of insight into why? You know, why was there this shift of power, and how do we really account for, for these types of changes? Right. Well, I think a big, uh, one big issue in the election, and which definitely hurt Future, was corruption. There was a, there, Future has been in power more or less for, uh, you know, it, on and off more or less for well over a decade. Uh, Prime Minister Hariri's father had been Prime Minister for a time. Of course, he was assassinated some time ago. But the, the Hariri dynasty, if you like, has been in power a great deal over the last couple of decades. Uh, uh, Lebanon, like most governments in the region, has a degree of corruption. And the longer you're in, the more the problems accumulate. And so corruption was a significant issue in this election, not only for Hezbollah, but also for some uh, newer reform movements that gained some support without really gaining many seats. But Hezbollah, um, of course, in the West, uh, we hear about Hezbollah as a terrorist organization. We hear about Hezbollah militias fighting with the Iranians in, um, in uh, Syria. We hear about Hezbollah as fighting with Israel. We, you know, this is the image we have as Hezbollah. But Hezbollah, as a domestic political party, um, um, provides a lot of social services. They uh, participate in local governments, and they're regarded as being less corruptible than the other parties. So that when corruption becomes an issue, that definitely is helpful to Hezbollah because they're seen as, as being religious, if you like, ideological, but not in it for themselves. So I think you gave us some good insights in terms of the platforms that they offer to the to the people um, but just for background for our listeners Lebanon is especially interesting because of the way it's governed right so if we could take a few steps back and explain confessionalism uh, to our listeners and how it manifests in the Lebanese political 
and electoral system. Right. So uh, Lebanon, it has to be say, said, is an extraordinary uh, system of democratic government or pluralism. It's unique in the world. There's nothing really like it. It's um, uh, divided according to the different religious sects. So at the, at the uh, largest level, the president, uh, who right now is Michel Aoun, always has to be a Christian. The prime minister always has to be a Sunni Muslim. The speaker of the house uh, always has to be uh, a Shiite Muslim. So, you know, the, the, the basic structures are built around religion. Then within the parliament, there are 128 seat, seats. Half of them are Christian. Half of them are, are uh, Muslim. But they're broken down further according to, you know, the Shiites and the Sunnis each get, uh, I think, 27 seats, and then the Alawites and the and the Druze get the other 10 seats. So it's a and on the Christian side, they're divided up among the Maronites and the uh, Greek Orthodox and the and and so on. So it's a very complex system. Now the important thing to understand, though, is it is universal suffrage. So if I so if I am, for example, a Shiite in an area which has four Sunni seats and one Shiite seat and a Druze seat and a Christian seat, just to, for the sake of argument, I get to vote for all of those uh, seats. It's not as if as a, as a Shiite I only get to vote for Shiites. I get to vote for um, um, all the people running in my area, irrespective of their religion, but those seats have to be filled by people of certain religions. So it's an attempt to maintain this balance between Lebanon, which is one of the most religiously and socially complex uh, countries in the world, even though it's tiny. We'll have more with Professor Adams after a quick break. You're listening to Policy Talks Podcast in partnership with iAffairs Canada, recorded at CKCU 93.1 FM. For more, please go to www.policytalkspodcast.com. All our institutions were paralyzed. Since the election of President Aoun, Today you have a better chance in, you know, in steering Lebanon from all the storms that, that surrounds it. So for me, uh, <clears throat> what happened on the 4th of November, like I said, it is in the past. It brought us uh, some, ne- some positive things, to, uh, this policy of this association. Uh, and, uh, and I think this is the way we need to move forward because this is the only thing that will benefit Lebanon. If we think we can meddle as Lebanese into affairs of other nations, we will pay the price. That was Lebanon's Prime Minister Saad Hariri during an interview with the World Economic Council where he reflects on his sudden resignation in November 2017 from Riyadh. The move flared up tensions in the region as many saw Hariri, a long-time Saudi ally, being held hostage by Saudi Arabia as part of the power struggle between Saudi and Iran. He rescinded his resignation in early December after the coalition government, including Hezbollah, reiterated its disassociation policy. 
This policy boils down to a promise that Lebanon would not interfere with regional conflicts. However, regardless of that policy, it seems that regional conflicts continue to impact Lebanese politics. And you touched on the regional rivalry between Saudi Arabia and, and Iran, and I'm wondering if you can expand on whether or not, um, well, you, you mentioned the role, but what what else has it, how else has it influenced the Lebanese elections? And considering such external influence, do you think there's any legitimate concerns about the integrity of the Lebanese elections? So uh, one of the big influences by these external powers is just simply money. Uh, the Lebanese, you know, here in Canada, we have a well-controlled system of money in elections. We look south of the border of the United States, they don't right? Lebanon in that respect is a little bit more like the United States, uh, though uh, the United States at least has controls about money coming in from outside. So a lot of money washes into the Lebanese system. So the dominant parties, both Shiite and Sunni, um, and also Christian, um, get a lot of money from outside from mysterious sources. Uh, It appears, you know, that that Future and its allies are getting money from the Saudis, the Hezbollah and its allies are funded, it appears, by the Iranians. In parts of the country, there's there's vote buying. I We didn't see it. I was in the south around Nabatea along the Israeli border, uh, predominantly Shiite area, but, but other, certainly Druze and Christian there as well. Um, where in other parts of the country, though, uh, there was definitely vote buying. Um, some of our observers saw money being distributed outside the the, the polling places. In in the um, Hezbollah mall areas where we were, predominantly Shiite areas, it's really much more social control. That is to say, I think the, uh, I'm going to forget the exact numbers, but the, the polling place that I finished the day in was in a Shiite village there were maybe 250 votes in that poll. All but about 12 of them were for Hezbollah Mall for their joint list. So um, if the Adams family decided that they were going to vote against Hezbollah and Amal, and I took my 25 you know, cousins and children and parents to vote against Hezbollah Amal, you know, they would know <laughs> that it was the Adams family who had moved, right, because it would go from... 25 to 37, right? So it's really social control. We, t- we spoke to one young woman who was uh, a Shiite, you know, uh, a religious woman wearing a hijab who was running for a reform ticket. And she uh, told us that her sister had gone to a medical dispensary and the medical dispensary had said, you know, if you want medical help, why don't you go ask your sister, right? So in other words, she was being refused the medical uh, help she wanted because of because she was running against the Hezbollah Amal list. So that's really social control, right? Like people are fearful of stepping out of line in a place where where. Um, but in other parts of the country, there are other sorts of ways of manipulating the election. And I don't want to suggest that by saying this that Hezbollah and Amal aren't popular in that part of the country. They're very popular in, the, in that part of the country, but the point is they're so popular that it's very hard for people to dissent. And if we look at 
voter turnout more broadly. I right. think you did a really excellent job of illustrating on the ground how the elections took place and the impact that the elections have had on the Lebanese context and the way the country is governed. But looking at, at voter turnout, uh, the election reported an extremely low turnout with only 47% of registered voters casting ballots. Can you speculate as to some of the driving factors for this in terms right. of, of why? So I would, uh, here I'm, I'm speaking from, I'm, I'm, it's a surmise, like we don't, I, I haven't seen research that's established this, but uh, if you go back to the 2009 election, in the 2009 election there were essentially two coalition, two party coalitions, so they had coalitions that included some Christians, some Sunnis, some Shiite over here, and then another coalition that included all the sects or all the religious groups over there. So rival Christian parties on different sides of the divide and so on. So, it, But in that election, one of those coalitions included Hezbollah and one of them didn't. The one led by Hariri and the future party didn't have Hezbollah. The other coalition did. It was very much an election about Hezbollah and the role that it should play in Lebanese politics. Hezbollah has been if you like, a valiant defender of Lebanon from the incursions of the Isra Israelis in the south. It's also provoked wars with the, with the, uh, with the Israelis. It uh, may not be corrupt, but it also prevents the government of Lebanon and in the past has actually prevented the Lebanese army from entering the southern part of the country. So the place of Hezbollah in Lebanese politics is very important. In the 2009 election, it really was kind of a referendum on Hezbollah. And, um, and the coalition led by Hariri that was, uh, that was more favorable to the Saudis, more dominated by Sunnis, uh, it was elected and it was a defeat for Hezbollah. But over the years that followed, you know, gradually what happened was that coalition fell apart and you started to have much broader coalitions and Hezbollah became part of the government and supporting. And, and so that in this election, it was really choosing among different party factions who were going to get a little stronger and who were getting a little weaker. But it wasn't about some profound choice about the future of Lebanon. We conclude our conversation with Professor Paul Adams after the break. You're listening to Policy Talks podcast in partnership with iAffairs Canada, recorded at CKCU 93.1 FM. For more, please go to www.policytalkspodcast.com. First of all, the war, I don't see at all any signal that the war will come back to our country because the war started between us, between the Lebanese. And the Lebanese, they show every day that they want to live together. There is no doubt in my mind that the Lebanese, they will never ever come back to have war among each other at all. That was former Prime Minister Rafiq Hariri during a 2004 interview with CNN. He expresses his belief that the Lebanese people would never allow the country to succumb to another civil war. 
Rafiq was the late father of the current Prime Minister, Saad Hariri. He was assassinated in 2005, which was widely speculated but never decisively confirmed to be the work of Hezbollah. Taking all this into consideration, the way the elections took place, the different politics at play, would you say that confessionalism has been an effective model of governance? So, um, it, it's been it, it's certainly not a model for anybody else. <laughs> you know, it's really sui generis. It's really something that's applicable to the to the to the Lebanese. Um, Lebanon went through a terrible, terrible civil war. Right? Uh, it it it's it's also had external wars with with Israel. But really, the civil war is this thing that tore the country apart and left you know neighbor fighting neighbor. You know, Christians fighting Sunnis, fighting Shiites, and fighting one another. And um, it's left a, a, a terrible burden of, of fear so that um, in Lebanon today, on the surface, it's a very peaceful, lively society. If you go into Beirut, you don't have any sense. Now, you see some of the scars of civil war, but you don't. It's, it's, a, it's a lively, colorful city where different peoples are mingling, and it, it doesn't feel like a, 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 a city in the grip of fear. But Lebanese know that, you know, it wouldn't take that much to tip the nation back into civil war. There are lots of guns around. There are lots of, you know, the, whether it's the Syrians or the, or, the, or the Iranians or the Saudis fooling around in there, also the, the Americans, the, 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 you know, even the Russians, the, the Israelis, lots of people have interests in Lebanon. And, um, uh, and, then the, and then it's a little bit of a powder keg because of the divisions between these communities. So the question is, does this system keep people from fighting each other on the streets and, and get them working within a political system which is, which is far from perfect. It's not, you know, uh, the Christians get half the seats. They don't have half the population. In fact, they haven't had a census in Lebanon since the 1930s because, you know, uh, a census would be, uh, would upset the apple cart, right? It would tell everybody how many of each group there were, and then it would require a renegotiation of all the seats and it would affect all this delicate, political balance. So that's how delicately poised Lebanon is. They can't even have a census, right? Um, So I think what you'd say is that it's a very, very imperfect system of government, but every day that it preserves the peace, every day longer that it preserves the peace, um, is is a good day, right? And it's, it's been a long period, a relatively long period under this constitution. And, um, and I would say, just on the on the purely on the narrowly uh, the narrow issue of the electoral regime, there were significant. I saw significant improvements from two thousand and nine to uh, this year, uh, in particular around the secret ballot. Like it used to be, it used to be that you could uh, vote with a piece of paper where you wrote down the names. Well, sometimes that meant the party agent wrote down the name, and you got you got money for doing it, or sometimes they would give a, a ballot that was printed, but it was in a particular font so they could tell, you know, which family, you know, all, everyone in a particular family would be given a ballot that looked similar. So it was very easy to, 
use either bribery or intimidation to ensure that people voted in a certain way. This time, the vote was truly secret. Um, I, I don't know whether the bribery and intimidation was less this election, but I think that over time, uh, when the people who are bribing or intimidating can't actually find out whether their 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 pressures uh, or their inducements worked, that I think over time that's going to lead to a better election. I think that the money is still terribly uncontrolled and it ne- that needs to be improved. Uh, but I, I do think the, this election was a little bit better, significantly better run than the previous one, particularly around the, the secret ballot. So that makes me, you know, I'm not... Uh, going to be a Pollyanna about the future of Lebanese democracy, but that makes me hopeful that there's a little bit of a, uh, that it's gravitating in a technical sense in a better direction. And, you know, each peaceful election, relatively peaceful, I'm not saying nobody died or nobody was shot, but each relatively peaceful election is another, um, uh, is another moment in the history that people can remember as something that worked and is makes it a little bit more normal, I guess. On that note, Professor Adams, thank you so much for giving us a really reflective analysis of the current state of Lebanon, but also looking back and seeing how we got to the state of play uh, with the current election. So thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for inviting me. Thank you for listening to Policy Talks. Remember to visit us at policytalkspodcast.com and on Twitter at PolicyTalksPod for updates and related content. We would like to acknowledge the support of our partners at iAffairs Canada, an online media hub based at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. iAffairs engages the diverse international affairs community in Canada and around the world to produce policy research and recommendations on foreign policy issues with a specific focus on students, emerging scholars, and young professionals. Please visit them at iAffairsCanada.com to learn more. Finally, I'd like to acknowledge the hard work of our wonderful production team. Samran Roy, Basil Ismail, Hamza Haddad, Stephen Cook, and Joe Venkatesh. Until next time, I'm Rasha, and this is Policy Talks. <laughs>